It's episode 87 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Alex Davis. Dive in the Podcast is a weekly all about diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, freediver, or tech diver, Dive in has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews with guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, and ocean advocacy. Visit DiveInPod.com to find out more about the show, past guests, and our Patreon. Hi, everyone. I'm April. I'm Nick, and on a single breath, we talk about free diving disciplines. I'm Amit, and on Side Mount, we're talking neck pain. And together, we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Before we start today's episode, we'd like to thank you, the listeners. Thanks for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. What did you all think about last week's episode with Zandi Nulovu? Well, uh, I quite enjoyed that. I mean, listening to her perspectives about like that, I guess I would call it late entrance into the ocean and uh, the passion that kind of came with that first experience right up through to her, you know, challenging stereotypes and uh you know being a, a woman in leadership positions both in and out the water uh, i quite uh, i quite enjoyed speaking with her and yeah uh, overall uh, overall great episode yeah she had a she had a ton and ton of energy she was super energetic for for being late at night in south africa uh mm-hmm. which is you know part of our challenge with time zones and having four hosts and i, I guess because uh, jessen hasn't cut the rough cut yet because in podcast time machine it's all over the place. So, April, machine. you haven't had a chance to listen to it, have you? No, I haven't heard the interview, so I can't. Uh, I can't really comment on last week's episode because I'm, uh, you know, I'd be blind commenting. Oh. It was the best <laughs> interview com- ever. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, you'll, you'll, you're going to like it. By the time oh, this okay, episode okay. comes out, you will listen to it. The listeners are confused. It's okay because we are too. <laughs> yeah, we're always confused as well. So it's just <laughs> yeah. Um, so tonight we're speaking to Alex Davis. Alex Davis is an Ada freediving instructor, competitive freediver with 11 national records for Barbados and the Spearfishing Guide. He also owns and operates a freediving school and spearfishing outfit called Freediving Barbados. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Awesome. Awesome. How's Barbados? Warm, hot, uh, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Jealous. Visibility's been great this week. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, Fair yeah, different than Nova Scotia. Yeah. <laughs> We've got what? Rain, yeah. cold. Declining visibility. And yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know what? Uh, I will live vicariously through you during this podcast. <laughs> We're doing that weather thing again. Um, we'll officially start your interview in a moment, Alex. But before that, have you ever dived with a great white shark? Not with a great white. No? Any sharks? No, many, many others. Yeah. Reefs, nurse, hammerhead, bulls. Yeah. Lots, lemons, but not a great white. Well, and uh, and for today's news segment, uh, a couple of our local divers had a, what they call an unbelievable experience. Uh, they were diving just outside the harbor, not far from shore, uh, close to a drop off. And as they were coming up, they uh, encountered a swim past of a, about a 10 foot great white shark. Um, and then they sort of made their way down to the bottom, uh, try to find their way back to the anchor line. Uh, but that wasn't before they had two more sort of flybys of this shark that that sort of checked them out. Um, so I had a chance today briefly to chat with um, Michael Schringhammer, one of the divers who, along with Chris Harvey Clark, were on that on that dive. Obviously, they managed to make it out okay without uh, any issues. Um, so we'll cue in that audio here in a minute, and you can listen to our uh, brief chat with Michael. 
So, uh, Mike, I heard you got a, you had an interesting encounter on a dive the other day. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you were diving? So we were diving on Shibakto Head. It's myself and Chris Harvey Clark. Uh, we were initially going for a torpedo ray dive, and we got uh, pushed out of the area because of the swell. It was it was wild. Like okay, cool. But you you didn't end up seeing torpedo rays. You saw something a lot cooler. Uh, yeah, we saw something a little bit different. <laughs> um, we went down the down the area a bit, down the coast, and we anchored on one of the wrecks that was there, and we popped down, looking around. We were checking some areas, seeing if we could see some rays down there, and we were in the wrong spot entirely. It, it's typical, like a, a Chris Harvey Clark, Michael Schwinghammer dive. It you end up, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get sometimes. <laughs> well, I guess that that and, led up to, to the truth then. Oh God, I'm very. We've done this a few times, and <laughs> we have this habit of looking in different directions constantly. So you're like you're going up, one person's looking down, one person's looking around, just scanning. And we'd been diving about 34 meters, and we didn't find the wreck. We were, this was like just a purely enjoyment dive. Sure. We ditched our cameras. I had three GoPros on me that I was using for mapping. I ditched them on the boat because we, it was a lot of swell. We were like, we're not going to see anything. Visibility is awful. turns out visibility on the bottom, pretty good. Not on the surface, though, or the top 30 feet. Um, so he ditched his 20K camera that he just left. He has bought a while ago in the spring. And we missed our wreck. We couldn't find what we were doing, going around, looking for rays. We came from 34 meters to about 20 meters and we're cruising along for five minutes, just 10 minutes. And then he's banging his tank. He's bang, 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 bang. <laughs> he's got his light. He's pointing. Bang, 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 bang. And I'm just like, oh, this is, yep, I've been expecting this. Um, so, Nick, you know I give a shark spiel every time we go yeah. dive, when we've been diving, and I do this for every single person in the area that we've been going there for, because it, it it was bound to happen eventually. For sure. But yeah. he's pointing, and all of a sudden, I can't see it there, but I go, I look further on, and it's there. <laughs> this massive silhouette of a great white shark. And how, it just how close, how close did it get to you? Uh, well, the visibility was probably, it was at most 30 feet and this wasn't, I was, it was, it was silhouetted. I, I, it's hard for me to say, honestly, it's yeah, one of those yeah. things where you're like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> and, it, and it made a couple of passes. Is that right? Uh, it made two passes at least on us, probably three. And that's what we could see. And so like the one pass would have been acceptable, I guess. <laughs> But like when you've got a smaller shark, which is the he was Chris was saying it's a ten foot shark, and he was like, "Oh no!" You can see it in his eyes when he's looking at me, and I'm <laughs> looking at him, and we're like, "Oh no!" So we stuck to the like our common uh, protocol for all this stuff, and we talk about you go down to the ground, you're going, and we just started retracing our back steps back, and we're just looking around us constantly, <laughs> and. It's weird, but it, you stay really, really calm when that type of stuff happens because what's the point in freaking out if you get that? I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like, like you really have an alternative, right? You're, you're there, you're in the moment, freaking out, it's not going to help you. Exactly. It, it's super weird, but you see some people panic, others, you just, you're like, this is what's happening, I have to accept it, and we're going to deal with it as best as we can. So we started retracing our steps back, swiveling, constantly looking around, and we're still at like 20 meters. We'd been at... 32 for a while and then like uh we hit the ascent line and we start going up and that's when we go into this low visibility area is that just my like near the surface when the vis is bad yeah it it wasn't it was near the surface it was the top 30 feet that was just not good like where you should be doing your five minute safety stop that that didn't happen that day that was yeah. a solidly we just ignored it. I went up slowly, but there's no point in getting an AGE or if you can avoid it by taking 20 to 30 seconds more and just like slowly coming up, getting your stuff done. And like for most DCIM tables, you can do like that hand over hand. You're like, okay, I'm going up. Did you, did you have deco or you, I mean, this was strictly recreational. No, this was, we didn't have deco. We were, we were good there. It's just, it's one of those things where you're coming up, you're coming up fast. You've okay. got, your heart's pounding and like you go down to 34 meters and like we weren't on nitrox. We were just expecting to have fun and like mess around. And no. that happens. We saw a great white. That's pretty awesome. I mean, that's, that's pretty rare, pretty unique. I mean, even though, even though you're saying, you know, at some point you were expecting this, it's still pretty rare, pretty unique. How, how did you feel? Like, was it like scared, excited? It's a mixture of terrified, excited and like, and regret that I didn't have a camera. And like, because <laughs> no one's going to believe it. No one believes you. Like, it's, a new, it's the Nova Scotia Cougar story. Except <laughs> you've just seen the equivalent of a friggin' tiger. And you're like, what? Yeah, that's freaking awesome, man. That's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool story. That's where we dive, right? Yeah. Uh, it's def- I'm going to probably be back in the water tomorrow, but like this is one of yeah, those so things. I was, was going to say, that's not going to stop you from going. That was going to be my next question. You're going to go back, right? You can't stop. If you let fear go and just take control of you for these things, like what are you going to do? You- no, it, it's terrifying. Like I woke up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. And I was like, this could have gone so badly. And like yeah. that realization, like if I'd been using my scooter and just like going, making a little bit, the shark might've taken a little bit more interest in me. Or if I'd been more like separated, you don't really know all these things, but you only can do the best you can. Did you have any, I guess it's kind of hard, right? If you've never seen one before, but did you ever have any, at any point in time that an impression of the shark was, was showing anything more than sort of a cursory interest to see, hey, what's going on in the water and then moving on? Or, or did you feel threatened in that sense? I, I didn't, but I don't, I'm not the expert on this. Chris is the man for sharks. He's dove everywhere. Right. And so there's this like, you, you go at the pace of your dive partner, right? And when Chris is moving and he's going with a purpose, I'm following. <laughs> and this, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Right? Like, this is the man that knows what he's doing. I can, I'll watch out for Chris. I'll do everything I can to go and make sure that this is as good of a scenario as I can be there, as it could be there. And yeah, you, when a shark's gone around, it, 
and you're like, okay, we're going into low vis water. This is not the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're going to go through it, right? To get out. <laughs> hey, that's the thing. Like, even you're going through your head, you're like, are we going up the rocks instead and just calling someone to go and retrieve the boat <laughs> for us? <laughs> yeah. But we had to. We went up, went up there, and we were all right really worked out quite well honestly (laughs) yeah no i think i think that's a pretty awesome experience i think uh that's something you can you can tell stories about for a long time to come and um you know that's one reason we go in the water absolutely it's going to be probably a a story that i'm going to be telling for a while (laughs) that's it for the news today it's time to dive in with alex davis so where are you from alex originally from cornwall in the uk I moved to Barbados in 2011. And what led you, uh, sorry, what led you to move to Barbados? I came here in 2008 um, with a group of friends and uh, met my uh, ex-partner and moved out here in 2011. Yeah, it was one of those, uh, came on vacation and tried to never leave. Nice. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you've, you've, you seem to have um, succeeded in doing that, um, but I imagine... Growing up in, in Cornwall, you must have maybe lived close to the ocean or interacted yeah. with it. What was your first memory of, of the ocean? Well, I'll go back a little way there. Um, so when I was about 10, we moved to the coast, um, originally from Hampshire, which is not too far from London, but you know, an hour and a bit outside. Um, so when I was about 10, we moved down to, to the coast and that was it. I was surfing and swimming and um, parents put me into the junior lifeguard program down there because you know they saw me going out surfing in these pretty decent conditions. Um, so that was it. It was every day come home from school, grab the board, go for it. Um, birthdays in February, and I always tried to make a big thing about going out my birthday, but it's usually you know five six degrees, <laughs> and you get about <laughs> half an hour before you can't put your fingers <laughs> together or really move them much at all. Um, just enough to paddle back in, really. So then, yeah, when I moved uh, out here, it was uh, always loved to be in the ocean, but moving here and sort of being able to go in in shorts and see all the way to the bottom, 20, 30 meters down, um, that was it. The the desire to stay at the surface was gone in that instant. <laughs> Birthdays in February are a little easier now, I take it. <laughs> well, I dive every year, uh, every day, sorry, of the year. Uh, you're, you're definitely making me jealous of uh, hearing these stories. There's no question about that. Yeah, yeah the, the biggest struggle we have here is having to switch from a one mil to a three mil for you know, a <laughs> little cold snap in February, March. <laughs> I don't feel bad for you for some reason. <laughs> you're not the first person uh, to say that. No. <laughs> in the In the beginning, what motivated you to get into free diving? So when I first moved to the island, um, within about a week of, of being here, I'd seen so many instances of local guys walking along. Um, we have a place called the Boardwalk. It's like a one kilometer wooden boardwalk right on the ocean front. Um, and I'd see these local guys with spear guns and fish and naturally it caught my eye. And I was like, that looks like a lot of fun. Um, got into spearfishing and uh, just took it from there. You know, we'd hit 10 meters, have about two seconds. And then immediately returned to the surface, and it was just that constant desire to want to go deeper and longer. And you know, you'd always see those bigger, tastier fish just out of range, a little bit off the reef, a little bit deeper. Um, yeah, and the passion kind of grew from there. 
If I understand correctly, you initially learned to dive sort of very informally, right? Um, for the mm-hmm. want of a better term, how how has that shaped your free diving? Made it a little harder to correct bad habits when I finally did do a free diving course. Um, I'd spent I moved here in what 2011, started spearing, and then it was 2014 I did my first free diving course. Um, I'd already done a couple of weeks before I went to do my course. I'd already done you know a 30 meter free dive and um, thought you know. I knew it all and realized quite quickly, knew nothing. Um, so I actually flew back to England to do my first freediving course. Obviously, here in Barbados, there was there was nothing. There was no one. Um, nearest island was like Bonaire at the time with Carlos um, or Florida. And then realized that there was a freediving school just around the corner from where I grew up. So I figured, well, I go stay with family. That's the accommodation sorted. And yeah, did my first uh, eight or two, eight or three in the UK back in those cold waters. Where was it in England that you did the free diving course? So there's a school called Freedive UK. That I'm pretty sure they're still operational. Runs out of Newquay, Cornwall. I remember our, our first dive was in a granite quarry. I don't remember exactly where that was. Just following the instructor there in the car. So yeah, that granite quarry was nice. It was four Celsius at the bottom <laughs> and visibility of about half a meter. Yep. So it sounds nice. like Nova Scotia. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they gave me a five mil suit, you know, and socks uh, and no gloves initially. And within about five minutes, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go need those gloves now. It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the five mil in that water, I think, is like ambitious. Wow. Um, it was an open cell. So okay, a, little bit, a little bit warmer. Yeah, a little yeah. bit warmer. Yeah. That was, um, you know, growing up, I just used to wear like a either a 3-2 surfing suit or a 4-3 or something. Now that I was older and doing this freediving course, I was like, how on earth did I ever get through as a teenager such, you know, a crappy little surfing suit for hours on end? I I don't know how I did it. Well, probably two things I'm thinking, like the youth. And of course, there's the fact that you got spoiled in Barbados, which uh, having lived for a time in Trinidad, no joke when I tell you that like people here laugh all the time because they they look at me and they're like, August, the, the temperatures in Nova Scotia have reached a balmy you know, 18 degrees and they're, they're asking me why I'm wearing a wetsuit going in the beach. And I'm like, cause you mm-hmm. have no idea what a beach mm-hmm. actually is. And so, you know, I, <laughs> I guess good or bad. Uh, I usually tell Nova Scotians, I acknowledge that you have beautiful coastlines, but I'll let you know when I find a beach. So it, yeah, <laughs> it's it, the cold water is something else, but yeah, that's, uh, that's cool to hear. So I, I wanted to ask you though, you started Barbados freediving in 2016. So yes. what is it and why did you decide to venture down that route? So I started the, it goes back to the spearfishing. So I started the spearfishing in 2013, my first freediving course in 2014 and kind of knew, even when I started the, the spearfishing sort of charter stuff, um, that by the way, mostly kind of, I'd say the big catalyst was the invasive lionfish. That was kind of the kick up the butt to get started with that idea. Um, almost right away, I was like, I really want, and I don't say need, but I really wanted that training. Um, as soon as I did my first, you know, two level, uh, freediving courses, knew instantly, right? Instructor, that's, that's the next step, right? There's, it doesn't exist in Barbados. There's a, there's a gap in the market for it there. It's my thing. It's something I love and enjoy already. Um, and I always had that, that kind of, uh, extra enjoyment out of going deep where some people would go deeper to retrieve something or if they had to, you know, if they had to try and get a fish out of a, of a spot or something, but I just enjoyed it. Also, I just enjoyed 
go into the deeper parts. So then came back from that trip. Now, you know, level one, level two certified. And it was instantly on the search for like, right, when and where am I going to do my instructor course? Um, you know, gave it a bit of time, tried to put everything into practice, become a better diver myself. And then early 2015, it was like, right, it's happening this year. Saw what was around. Bahamas popped up. Um, they were offering what they called their master class, which if you could also get your eight or four certification, your kind of advanced certification. And then stayed on a bit longer and did the instructor certification, predominantly with um, Johnny Sunex. But uh, during that master class thing, there was Dean Schausch, William Truebridge, um, operation guy Goran Cholak as well was there for the master class. So there was all this kind of going on and um, I was like, right, that's that's the one I'm going to do. And, you know, Dean's Blue Hole being kind of the um, unofficial mecca, I'd say, of freediving kind of uh, prestige, if you will. It was also a big drive to like, right, let's go. Um, mm-hmm. Two weeks before... The instructor course was, and the master class was due to start. Hurricane Joaquin came and annihilated Long Island, um, Bahamas. Long Island is 82 miles long, memory, quote me if I'm wrong. And it mostly just destroyed the southern half. Two weeks before it was due to go and do this instructor course, the accommodation that's all booked is now a pile, no roof, just empty shells. So scrambled to find somewhere else. And it was kind of like, Am I supposed to be doing this? You know, there's like all these little signs, like hurricanes coming through and ripped up the island. But no, I made it there in the end and um, fell in love with it even more. Um, the blue hole, at least when I did my instructor course, was not what you typically see in the pictures. When I went there, it was a little bit chilly. Went in end of October. So three mil suit was kind of, when you're in the water for a few hours, the three mil suit was, was what was needed. And the visibility was terrible, like two meters of his. <laughs> Everyone that was mm-hmm. there was like, I've seen all these pictures of the blue hole and it's like perfect and I can barely see the rope. Um, <laughs> so that was my first experience of the blue hole. Was It was a green, dark mess. Well, so I mean, that wasn't, I guess, like the, you know, the picturesque, pe- the picturesque mm-hmm. piece that I have in my mind when I'm thinking about it. But you, you definitely had the opportunity to train with some, with some pretty, pretty big names there though. Um, mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Because, you know, on top of being an ideal training, well, semi-ideal in your case, training situation there, you're, you're getting some pretty significant uh, uh, firepower to train with. So was that, uh, do you find like formative in your experience? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, it was sobering. Uh, you know, having already been doing the spearfishing charters, you know, daily for a couple of years, you know, felt I was pretty proficient and XYZ and being around all this other group of people in that masterclass that were already, you know, competitive freedivers, some of them. Some of them were I think there was even one person in the class that was an instructor, but simply came to do the the master class to get to dive with Truebridge and Sonex and Cholak and on Shaush and everyone. So um yeah, it was a really good experience. I ended up finishing my instructor course with a sixty two meter PB. Um just felt like the right environment, the right people, um, the right setup and everything was just Going smoothly, yeah, yeah. It was a good, uh, a good time. And then Goran Cholak ended up becoming my coach down the line. So 2017 was my first comp, and um, I'd reached out to Goran and said, "Look, you know, we I was on this masterclass in the Bahamas with you, and want to look at online coaching training." And, um, yeah, so it, it was more than just that one trip. There's been a lot of um, 
yeah, a lot of value taken out of it over the years. So since uh, becoming an instructor, are there things that you've learned about yourself or your own free diving from teaching the sport? Lots of extra patience, <laughs> which I've always had. Um, well, I always like to think I have. Grew up fishing. You know, even when I wasn't in the sea, I was always lake fishing. So I always felt like, oh, if you're a fisherman, you've got patience, right? You kind of have to. Um, teaching, I think as well as patience, just more, yeah. I guess it kind of goes back to the first few times I took someone spearfishing and they shot their first lionfish. And, you know, the look on their face kind of said it all. And that for me was more gratifying than I think I could have predicted. I kind of got hooked on that thing of like, seeing someone spear a lionfish for their very first time you see the it's a hard thing to describe it's kind of like it's very satisfying (laughs) very gratifying um and i was kind of hooked on that so with the free diving it's the same thing you know um i'll have a student on the first day of the course and they'll be like oh last night i did 30 seconds breath hold that was all i could manage i'm never going to be able to do more than a minute alex and then they end up doing two minutes 55 three minutes whatever the time may be and you they come up, you know, we're, we're having a quick conversation. They're, they're doing their recovery breathing. And I know they want to know their time. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm like trying to drag it out a little bit. You know, how did it feel? You know, and then they're just staring at the watch like, what, what was my time? What was my time? And then you tell them like you know, two and a half or three minutes, whatever it is. And they're just like, they look at you like, no. Um, that's become kind of addictive is seeing people's reaction to their own performances. So mm. I think that's what kind of keeps it going for me at least someone who's like, no, I can't dive more than 10 feet. And then they do 65 feet. And I know I'm terrible yeah. switching between feet and meters. It's uh, do it all, all day long. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's more than all right. Um, so, I mean, that's that's one of the rewarding aspects of, of teaching. Do you, what would you say is probably one of the more challenging sides of teaching for you? This year in competition, I had some equalization challenges, which I'm not accustomed to. And since coming back from that, work's been quite busy. Um, which has also been in some days been a bit of a challenge. So I'd say the biggest challenge sometimes is me. <laughs> you know, I'll be diving one day and um, get out the water being like, oh, you know, my ears are okay, but definitely a bit sensitive. But there's no day off for a week. So it's, that's probably the, the biggest challenge is um, trying to listen to my own body, the dial it back when I need to. Mm. So you started free diving Barbados in 2016. Mm-hmm. What yes. is your elevator pitch to a potential customer? Oh, uh, well, you caught me on the spot there. <laughs> um, I guess that's the idea, right? Uh, the elevator pitch. Normally, I kind of just leave with the whole mammalian dive reflex thing. Um, kind of tell someone, look, you have one, right? You can do a five-minute breath hold if you put your head to it. And they're like, nah, never. It's like, well, I can get you to do at least two minutes right now if you want. Kind of like pitch them on the idea that, you know, give me an hour of your time and I'll, I'll give you a two-minute breath hold kind of thing. And they're like, mm, I don't know. I've only ever done 30 seconds before. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the thing is, yeah, I guess my elevator pitch is like, I can get you to do this that you don't think you can do. You know, try me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think you know, when I look at that, I, I do think that there are times when most of us were, if you're a kid in a bathtub, how long can I hold my breath, right? So it's a thing that we've always kind of like touched on. So when somebody puts that, makes the, I guess, impossible to you possible, you're, you are, it's, it's a little bit of 
a little bit of bait there to drag you in. So not a bad, not a bad <laughs> trick. <laughs> so, but I mean, you, you've also got something else that you could probably sell now, probably less of a, of a sell to, uh, to Bajans themselves, but even to people that, that are traveling. So, and that is Barbados itself. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Barbados and what it's like to dive there, you know, the wrecks and the reefs and what have you. Yeah, it's, um, it's not a super deep island, um, which is good in many other ways. It means we have lots of shallow reef very close to shore. Um, unlike Florida and the Bahamas, you know, out there, if you go many miles off, you're still in very shallow water. Here, um, you know, half a mile out, you're in 30 meters, right? So there's there's really easy access to a lot of dive sites. Our main kind of one is called Carlisle Bay. It's got seven shipwrecks from five meters to 21 meters. So it's perfect for snorkelers, scuba divers, free divers. Um, it's got a lot of stuff to explore. We've got shipwrecks all over. Um, Barbados itself is great. I mean, it's one of the sort of premier, you know, destinations in the Caribbean. Come and we've got everything. We've got high-speed internet, you know, so <laughs> not that it looks very or sounds very high-speed right now, but so there's a lot of good things to come here for. Um, I think as well, during the whole pandemic stuff, Prime Minister was pretty pretty hot, quick on getting on um, the whole welcome stamp thing, getting people, you know, to keep coming to stay here and work remotely so i'd like to think that as for an island in the caribbean we'd we're a little more forward thinking in some areas you know Mm -hmm. i would personally like to see some more marine management stuff done which is happening slowly um as is all you know politically based uh activities it happens at their own speed but things are changing things are changing we just uh very recently actually the government just put some government issued fads down fish aggregation devices which is um should have been done a long time ago, but again, these things take time. Um, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people locally are becoming a bit more aware to the impact of what we have on of our own environment, and more regulation and protection is coming. Good. So, um, by the way, this is just a great place to come to. Um, lots to do. I mean, I've been here ten years, and there's still things on the island I haven't seen or done. You know that, that visitors would typically do. Mm some of the activities and stuff. Yeah, there's just so much. Mm. Kind of something for everyone. Is there a well-developed freediving scene on the island locally? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, I'd say there is, you know, I've been developing kind of a club for over the last, you know, couple of years. Um, selfishly, I sort of developed the club because, hey, I wanted to train for competition. I need buddies. So, <laughs> yeah, I've um, been there. <laughs> yeah, so... A lot of it was facilitating that and saying to people, look, if you're part of the session, I'll you know, give you a few tips here and there kind of thing, reel them in a little bit. But really, I just need a consistent people to go out with and train. And it kind of just kept growing. Um, it's always the the devil's advocate, though, right? You, you're getting ready for competition. You're, you're crying out for buddies. Hey, who's available this day, that day, this day? You do your competition. Everyone sees, oh, look, Alex did X, Y, Z in competition. You get back and I'm like, so when are we training? I'm like, <laughs> next year? <laughs> so um, yeah, my training cycle's over now. <laughs> right, exactly. I've just peaked. I've just got back, and I'm now in work mode. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the the scene is getting better. Um, we don't have that kind of easy access to depth. Um, mm. Off the shore, twenty meters, no problem. We want more than that. We can get forty, forty-five, but we need a boat. Um, right. And yeah. if the wind's blowing the wrong way, that 45-meter spot becomes 30 quite quickly. 
you swing around to the wrong spot if the wind's blowing differently. So, you know, there's there's places like Bonaire, like Dominica, for example. Um, in fact, actually, John John Fain from the school in Dominica is uh, he was out here a couple of days ago, and the same distance that we swam out to get, you know, twenty meters. Um, he was like, "Yeah, we'd have 160 right now." <laughs> yeah, this was Dominica, right. and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> "Yeah, rub it in, why don't yeah. you?" Yeah. So most of my training is sitting on the sand at 45 meters, trying to twiddle my thumbs and extend my breath hold. <laughs> right. Well, I, I got some questions about that uh, in in a moment. Um, so mm-hmm. we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back with more from Alex Davis. This episode of Dive In The Podcast is brought to you by Torpedo Rays Scuba. You can find them online at torpedorays.com. They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices, with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there. Welcome back to Dive in the Podcast. We're speaking with Alex Davis. Alex is an ADA freediving instructor and multiple national record holder for Barbados. So, um, Alex, before the break, we were talking a little bit about your training cycles and you know some of the challenges that you have when you can't find the depth. Uh, but what what was it that first piqued that interest in kind of the competitive side of uh, freediving? Shameless business plug. That was really it. There was no records <laughs> for Barbados for the men at the time for, for any discipline. So it was um case of getting my citizenship, which was a long process. I got my citizenship in 2016. So as soon as that happened, it was like, right, now now we can open the door up. I'd already um, you know, had the freediving school running at that point for, for a good year. And in my mind, the next logical step was let's put some um, credits behind the instructor kind of thing um you know get myself out there so yeah as soon as that citizenship stuff was all done the passport was all processed uh signed up for vertical blue 2017 um just decided just going to go and do my best you know the record's at zero so if i do a 10 meter dive boom i get a record um (laughs) so there was no pressure there's no one to compete against there was just do your best Mm -hmm. yeah and you went to your first competition at vertical blue like Mm-hmm. no less than a year after doing your instructor. So can you describe that experience for us? Really good to get back at the blue hole. Uh, so for me, it was just, I was so excited to experience it in the in the way in which I'd seen it in previous competitions, that perfect blue water, all the athletes. And yeah, the first experience was, was crazy. Um, overwhelming for sure. Um, I arrived like three weeks before the competition started. Um, it was only probably not including Will and stuff. There was probably only six or seven other freedivers there at the time. So it was nice to kind of get a slow introduction to everyone and meet all these new faces and getting different training sessions with people. And then as the weeks went on, yeah, it was just more people were arriving and some faces, people I knew already, some people never met before, but became with, you know, became good training partners and just wanted to soak the whole thing up. You know, that island 
Um, Long Island is small and there's not a lot going on, but if you're into diving and spearfishing, it's really good actually. So yeah, even on the rest days, I'd go spearfishing with uh, the local guy, Luke, Luke Malis. And um, yeah, fish in the Bahamas have never, never seen people before. So it's a whole different experience. Um, <laughs> the sharks as well. That was, you know, I dove with a few out here in Barbados, but Barbados really have to go looking for sharks if you want to find them here. They're not, they're not that common. But yeah, the competition first year was, uh, yeah, I'm not. My form of competition has always been with myself. I've never really had the urge to prove myself against mm-hmm. someone else. Does that make sense? Um, so it kind of suited me in a way. You know, it's a very individual thing. You know. Um, and I think, I f- what did I finish that year with? 84 meters, I think was my deepest that year. So it kind of opened up this idea that like, I'm really, you know, I thought I knew I was kind of hooked on this thing, but now I know I'm really, really into it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you're, I think for me, it was always that free fall. Yeah, I think that sort of gets a lot of free divers, eh? Yeah. In Barbados, yeah. because we don't have a, a huge amount of depth, you only get a little bit of free fall, you know? And then having the blue hole, it's like, how far can I take this? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you you've now yeah. set eleven national records for Barbados, mm-hmm. you know, taking it down to ninety-two meters, three hundred and one feet. Um, aside from, you know, having the, the, the bragging rights for the business, what do those achievements mean to you personally? I I, I kind of just look at them with, with pride. You know, it, it's not the deepest in the world and all the rest of it, and there's many people do a lot better, but for me it's just um kind of a culmination of the hard work I've put into it. You know, it's always been um a result of the effort applied um, for me. Um, so yeah, doing those di- those deep dives, there's something deeply gratifying, kind of like the teaching element, right? There's something deeply gratifying, not just to be like, oh, I've got the record, um, but just I've, I've done it. I mean, one of the first person I met when I got back from that competition um, is a commercial diver. So it does like, you know, welding um, mm-hmm. oil companies and stuff. One of the first things he said was like, you know, I work at 90 meters, but I'm in a full suit and I live in a, in a bubble for eight weeks at a time in order to do that. And he's like, and you went there just, <gasps> and that was it. And I was like, well, I wasn't sitting down there too long, but yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so even those others that have been deep like that, it's, it's, it blows my mind that he can stay there for like weeks on end and do all that welding work in the same way that it, it blows his mind that I can get there in one breath. So I don't know, there's something deeply gratifying. It's not just bragging rights. It's um it's like personal ego, I guess. I don't know how to, to describe it. Mm. Yeah, achievement, I guess, right? Like, you know, you work that hard to get to a thing. It's it's not a thing that mm. you we can we can wake up and do. So yeah, you kind of set a smart goal and went out and and achieved it, which I think is something to be celebrated. So now these deep dives, though, you kind of alluded to it being that you have a training issue, and you know, in the bar- in Barbados being shallow. So, other than of course just going to forty five meters and sitting around, you must have other techniques that you're using to adapt your training. So, what are you doing to to be able to achieve those deeper dives when you don't have access to the depth? So, the first thing that's helped is um, never really had much issue with equalization. It always it always came quite naturally to me. Um, so that was never a a big hurdle to overcome training wise lots of pool lots of pool time lots of conditioning um when you don't have the depth you know you can go to the pool and you can get more volume done in the pool um you know even if i had 30 meters i am um, in a session i might might get what, 
20 dives to 30 meters or so um, in a training session, but I can go to the pool and cover three times that amount of distance on a breath hold, just not to depth. So yeah, lots of pool training, lots of conditioning, lots of technique work. You know, the pool allows you to really do high volume in a short period of time in terms of distance covered on a breath hold. You know, it's not too difficult to go to the pool and do a kilometer underwater, you know, in an hour. Um, so it it's, allows that. Um, this year was different, COVID and all. <laughs> Pools shut, beach times are limited, social, you know, number of people you can be together. Everything was out the window this year. So this year was, I don't know, the craziest I got was took a big top sheet lined the back of my truck, filled it with water, did statics. <laughs> all, the, all, the, all the paddling pools had sold out by this point. So I took a sheet of tarpaulin, tarpaulin, however you say it, yeah. and um, put it in the back of the truck, filled it with water, and was laying down in the back of the truck doing statics. Because <laughs> it was locked at home. It was during the middle of the whole lockdown thing. And I'm like, I'm supposed to be training right now for a you know, big competition. What am I going to do? Well, that's dedication if I ever heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you do everything you can with what you've got. So yeah, hangs up 30, 40, 45 meters, uh, hours and hours in the pool, um, stretching every day um, and trying to find ways to hold my breath. That is awesome. And you're very dedicated. And uh, I think uh, if our lockdown was any longer, I might try to scuba dive in the back of a pickup truck. I don't know. We'll see <laughs> see what happens. Um, but what would you say is the most important aspect of your training? Probably the conditioning. I, I, yeah. I think when you do... Uh, I guess I'm talking some ways what I'll be saying kind of is regurgitated from my own coach. Um, you know, if you're someone who's competing kind of every other month then the way in which you train is going to look different as someone who competes once a year um training is been structured in a way that's what we call period periodized so training can start you know really basic stuff weightlifting stretching you know basic stuff and then the middle phase is kind of you're getting more specific now so to give you a small example um you go to the gym it's a cable machine i'll go down on my knees and I'll hold a single rope and I'll pull on it. Nick will know what I mean. We have a star called free immersion where we pull with our hands. So I'm that guy in the gym kind of with, I've, I've bought my own little two foot section of rope in the gym with me and I've hooked it up to the cable machine. I'm down the floor and I'm doing these pulls simulating kind of like a, a free immersion dive, getting lots of very strange looks. Um, have my nose clip on in the gym and empty lung exercises and yeah. Yeah, training's weird for freediving. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it very awkward when you're in the, in the gym. I've done that in, in a CrossFit gym myself, and people go like, yeah. why is he wearing a nose clip? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why is he sucking his belly in like all the way up into his chest like that? Mm. Speak, speaking yeah. of nose clips, you, um, you're you not known for, for using a nose clip for, for diving. You like to keep that mask on, uh, even even for going pretty deep and... You know, for those that, that don't understand what that means, it's, you know, if you have a mask on, you've got to equalize the airspace in there. Um, why is it that you stick with a mask and how do you do it? The real answer is uh, I'm, I'm a wuss. I don't like water in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real answer. <laughs> no lie. Since I was a child, I hated it. You know, everyone would jump in the pool, swim to the bottom, pick up stuff. And I'd come out like 
all completely screwed up face, red bloodshot eyes, like, oh, and everyone around me, all friends and whatnot, would just be like acting as if nothing's wrong. And I'm there feeling like I'm going blind. Um, hated it. Hated it. Um, so the reason why I've not, the reason why I use the mask is probably, I guess the hand on heart answer is because I haven't needed to ditch it yet. Um, I haven't quite, I'm getting close to that, that limit with equalization with the mask. Um, but I'm not there just yet. I think I can get a hundred with the <laughs> mask before I'm going to be somewhat forced to switch off. And as you say, it's, um, it's an equalization concern. So if you have to equalize a mask, then you have to take air out of your mouth in order to do that. When we're doing deep dives, generally, uh, below kind of, th- let's say 30 or 40 meters, you would close your throat, close your glottis and you'd leave it shut. So whatever air is then in your throat, mouth, sinuses and everything, that's all the air you have from, let's say, 30 meters to 90 meters. So if you're giving some to your mask, you're taking potential air that you could be using for your ears, sacrificing it to the mask. So in some mm-hmm. ways, you could argue it's inefficient. Um, you'll see most divers will get to a point, the mask, maybe 40, 50, 60 meters, maybe a bit more, and they'll be reaching this limit where it's just, that's the thing stopping them, is that they just don't have any air left because they, they've had to use their uh, air for their mask. Then you'll see people switch to nose slips. <clears throat> And now all of a sudden they've just they can go ten, twenty, thirty meters deeper um just by removing that, that mask. I've done a few fifty meter no fins, sorry, fifty meter um no slip, you know, style dives. Um yeah. I can I can do them, but they're not pleasurable. Um I guess mm-hmm. some I speak to some athletes that there's many times when they're they're doing the dive and they're powering through. For me, it's always been about fun. It's been about, you know, self... God, I nearly said self-pleasure, but it's like self-satisfaction. <laughs> Even that sounds bad. Just I've always done it for my own kind of thing. So being able to see clearly, comfortably, being comfortable um, mm. has always been a big element to that. And yeah, as I say, it's... Um, I guess I've got my equalization down. You ever done that, um, you know, the whole mouthfeel potential calculation? I have not, no. Okay. Maybe be a little bit technical, but I'll quickly cover it. So sure, yeah, for those that know what mouthful equalization is for deep freediving, it's, it's a process whereby at a depth of, let's say, 30 meters or maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more depending on the individual, you would fill up your mouth kind of like a hamster, completely fill out your cheeks, get as much air as you could possibly stuff into your face as possible, close your throat, and then that's it. That's all the air you, you're going to use now for the dive. So there's some sort of rough math you can use to like figure out like what's my potential with this style of equalization. So we would fill up your mouth at the surface after doing like a gentle exhale. So you breathe in, do like a half exhale, take your snorkel out, fill up your mouth to its absolute capacity, and then see where you can go to from the surface. Um, you can use that number to then calculate, well, if I instead fill my mouth up at 30 meters, how far could I then go beyond that? And it's sort of like a theoretical thing to kind of get an idea of mouthfill potential, as we would say, right? So it's a way to kind of gauge um, how strong is your equalization. Mm. Um, Yeah, and the first time I sort of properly tried to do one of those, ended up going to 36 meters uh, from the surface with that. So if you do the math on it, it's like, oh, theoretically, I can equalize to 130 meters with the mask. The reality is a bit different, but the math was there. So it kind of gave me that confidence, like, I don't need to ditch this mask yet. I'm going to keep going. Um, 
but you know, even Alexi this year did a what 131 new world record. And there was a moment where we're kind of coming in and out of the water, like, you know, saying nice dive, fist bump, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, when are you getting rid of that mask? <laughs> so they all give me, they all give me crap for it. And they're like, Hey, when are you going to, you know, upgrade and get rid of that mask? And I'm like, I can see clearly down there. You know? I know what I'm doing. I've seen, I've seen you on dive ice scrambling, trying to find your tag because you can't see what's going on. I was like, you don't see me have trouble. I see that tag and I grab it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So equalizing, uh, Mm. it doesn't seem like an issue to you at all. But have you faced any other challenges in your depth uh, progression? Um, I mean, I've had some of the sort of, I don't want to say typical, but, um, you know, usual kind of free diving injuries, um, throat squeezes, as we call them, a squeeze being a, a barotrauma, um, lung barotrauma, sinus barotrauma, um, had all these, these issues over the years. Um, yeah, equalization this year affected me. Well, I should say this year was a, probably the biggest challenge. Um, I'd like to blame it on everything else except for myself, but realistically, the volcano thing we had in, was it March? Um, St. Vincent Volcano, that ash was nasty stuff. I had chest pains for weeks, uh, you know, just because you can't, can't not breathe it. And then the Sahara dust, we had another plume of Sahara dust about a week before I flew to the Bahamas. So that was like lots of yellow uh, snot from all of that. Thanks. <laughs> so some days I would go and do my dive and I'd equalize flawlessly 80 meters, no problem. And then the next day it was like 40 meters and that's it end of equalization mm. and it was such it was so hit and miss this year and i just never knew going into the day how it was going to be you know i i do a dive to 20 meters for a warm up then i do a dive to 30 meters for a warm up then i do my deep dive and you would i'd never even on the equal even on the warm up dives it's like oh it feels really good and then i'd hit 40 meters and it was end that's it come back up so yeah this this competition i only got two white cards this year <laughs> so <laughs> Two blackouts, two early turns, and two white cards. I, I was going to say you had another first, right? That this year mm. was experience with with hypoxia, and yes. you, you've you've made it this far without having any issues with it. Um, what was that experience like for you? I was actually genuinely, I'm happy for it. Like, you know, slightly embarrassed that it was on the live stream the middle of a competition immortalized on the internet forever but oh well <laughs> um i've i've kind of tried to look at the silver lining to that and it's like well if it was in training i wouldn't have the video that i now have i wouldn't have you know the, the footage of it because i don't remember it realistically um i had two this year uh and again there was other factors that I'd, you know you try and identify like your mistakes and where you went wrong then it was a combo of a few things it was um hadn't eaten enough on that day. It was super hot. I hadn't drunk enough water. There was a, a delay in the competition as well. Some of our start times got pushed back. Um, there's all these other little factors, but ultimately it was my own fault. Um, so the first one, yeah, again, I've, I've got the live stream footage, the live stream video to kind of look back at. Um, in my memory, uh, everything was going well. I reached the bottom came back up. I remember seeing safety diver number one. I remember seeing safety number diver number two. Uh, and then I woke up being told to breathe and looking at a red card. And I was like, hmm? Like, what's that red card doing there? Um, and they're like, oh, you had a blackout. And I'm like, I did? 
still not sort of sure what's happened. Um, yeah, and when I look back at the footage, about 10 meters deep or so, you can see um, my technique starts to falter a little bit. Mm. And that's probably about the same time, I'd say, where my memory goes blank. Um, but I swam up to the surface by myself, grabbed the rope by myself, was breathing by myself, um, and then had... It's marked down as a blackout, but if you look at it, it's probably probably classified more as an LMC. Um, yeah, and sort of two seconds, little dip in the water, and then work right back up. And even in the footage, as I'm, as I've got like safety divers holding me and I'm kind of coming to, my eyes are opening. I immediately come back up and do the okay. So I say, I'm okay. Um, (laughs) And a few people like laughed around and it sort of became a bit of a, bit of a laugh. I mean, I started laughing once I realized when they're like, no, you had a blackout. And I was like, I did. And they're like, yeah, I just started laughing. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it looks really scary, but the reality is it, it was nothing. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's going to happen, it's in a competition. It's probably the best place for it to be, right? Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Why? Why do you think you've you've never had an issue with with hypoxia until now? And then I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in a curveball for you. Do you think mm-hmm. blackouts are inevitable in competitions? Okay, I'm gonna answer the second question first. Do I think <laughs> they're inevitable? Um, they don't have to be, but if you look at any activity, if you look at any sport. If you're trying to do your best and perform to your maximum, things are going to happen. So I always sort of say to people when I talk about blackouts and things that, they've, as you know, they're very not typical, right, in most freediving. But when you look at a competition, people are pushing themselves to effectively their limits, right? They're, they know, as you, as you stated, that this is the safest place for them to push themselves, right? Um, when I'm here training, I've got my, my, my buddies, but when I'm in competition, I've got four medics right there on hand. I've got three, four, five safety divers. I've got a whole crew of people paying attention to just me. Not that, that not that it's like an ego thing. It's just, you know, that should anything happen, you have a whole crew that are going to be dedicated to making sure you're okay. Um, so that also allows some extra comfort to push yourself even further mm. than you've done before. And sort of test those boundaries, test those limits. So do I think it's inevitable? I think if it doesn't have to be inevitable, but you push hard enough, you're gonna, you know, have that little that little dip, right? That little tip over the edge, and you go, whoa, okay, right, there's there's the uh ceiling for now, right? Mm. So in terms of I think the first question you asked was about how to Why don't you think you've encountered it up until now for yourself? Training. I seriously think that the pool training is such a good conditioner. Um, and I've got such a lovely coach um, who's not, you know, difficult or known <laughs> to be, um, to have some pretty gnarly training programs and uh, take a pretty brutal approach to any sort of um, weakness. <laughs> If I'm like, oh no, I went to the pool today, but you know, on a couple of these sets, I came up early, and he's like, why? I'm like, oh, I just wasn't feeling it, and he's like, so why didn't you do it? It's, it's like almost militant. So you're like, okay, it's no slacking off. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say probably the the pool grind is probably what kept me going um, for so long without without issue because. Mm. You can just do so much breath hold training in the pool. You know, CO2 training, uh, O2 training. um, And 
yeah, I'd say that's probably the, the main factor is that that sheer volume of breath hold work that you can do in a pool. Um, I mean, as, as I said, it's also what's available to me. So I think that's probably what, what really helped over the years. Um, you know, 92 meters was what official time was 2.51. Um, I've done four, four minutes or over four minutes at, at 30 meters in training. So it kind of gives you that confidence that like, mm. oh, a 90 meter dive, it's like three minutes. Okay, it's fine. So maybe there's there's a part of that mentally as well. Right. Mm. right. So when you only have 30 meters to play with, you get really good at staying at 30 meters. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So changing gears here a little bit, but even though it's something that a lot of people do, the opportunity to take a free diving course in the Caribbean uh, has until recently been very limited. So you had to travel away to get certified yourself. How do you yep. see things today in the region? Getting a lot better, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, especially now with you know restrictions being slowly kind of eased back, um, incentives in place. I think there's a lot more movement going on now. Um, as far as from an instructor perspective, I actually think the current setup, whilst we could do with some more visitors, um, ones we do have they're not just coming for that one week or two week trip. They're coming for three months, six months, 12 months. So from actually, from my perspective, this is actually a great thing. Um, I just had a student, um, yeah, yesterday who had a bit of trouble with equalization. Now I know that what she needs is another week or two weeks of some practice with this equalization at home, you know, throughout the day. She can, she can, she's here until the end of December. So she has that time to then do that practice at home come back to me in two weeks' time, do another dive with me and get her certification. If she was just here on that typical one-week you know, vacation, she would probably end up going back home without making that progression, right? So what does it look like in the region? I think there's, there's some good benefits to, to the way that things are reopening. But overall, um, protocols have gotten a lot better. You know, just recently now they've said, right, if you're fully vaccinated, there's no quarantine at all. You just test before you fly. If you're fully vaccinated, you land in Barbados, boom, you're free to go about your business. From mm-hmm. June, they implemented it where um, if you're fully vaccinated, you would arrive and then you have to do another test on arrival. So about 24-hour sort of quarantine. If you're unvaccinated, it's about six days. Now for those vaccinated people, there's no quarantine. There's no one-night you know, test. So they're slowly kind of dialing things back and um, I'm slowly seeing people kind of respond to that around the world where bookings are coming in now they're like oh I just saw the uh, protocols are easing up so yeah it's back on the map again because you know we, our sort of entry protocols were quite strict for a while mm. and I had lots of lots of cancellations and some of them were just purely from people saying yeah but I can go to the Bahamas and just walk right in and do what I want to do mm-hmm. I don't need to quarantine for one three six days I can just be free yeah that that makes sense in terms of uh you know, how people would look at their ability to travel. And let's face it, like most of us have jobs that we have finite amounts of vacation time. So when you're making those decisions, that does play a part in it. So I I did have a question. Um, In 2018, you launched Barbados Freediving Association. I say, as I say this, I'm like, I did have a question. Surprise, surprise, right? The host has a question. Um, (laughs) So I guess, can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Barbados Freediving Association and maybe what you hope to achieve through the BFA? We had many goals in mind when we started it and faced many barriers once we got it set up. Um, Hmm. You know, sometimes when you peel back that veil, 
things weren't quite what they were supposed to be. So there was supposed to be some other things in place to really push that association and make it um, operate in the way I was trying to make it operate. But regardless, so the association has sort of become a bit more of this sort of cl- training club that I've set up. I've kind of had to scale back that idea a little bit. Um, the long and the short of it is we have an, an Olympic sized swimming pool here and um, you know, it's public, but there's some big chunks of the, the prime time where there's swimming clubs, you know, water polo, all this sort of stuff. The original intention was to establish the club, get it all registered as a nonprofit, did all that, did the whole launch, blah, 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 blah. The intent was so that we could have that establishment whereby I could get lane allocation so we could get some dedicated pool time in those peak times. Mm. Um, when it all came, and I'm not just trying to, if anyone's watching from the aquatic center, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but in the reality of it is when we all got through in the end, they were like, right, but freedom, like after all this and the whole launch party, which we held at the pool, did, you know, paid to rent their <laughs> conference room to do the launch party. Um, yeah. The next day when I came in with like this big list of people that are going to be registering for it and Hey, here's the money. They were like, no, we can't give you any lane allocation. I'm like, huh? I've got all this money in this application form. Like, come on. And they're like, no, free damage is not Olympic sport. We, we, we can't give you that, that priority that you're looking for. And I'm like, well, you alluded to it last week. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, well, we can, we can still register you as a club. I'm like, oh yeah, you still want the money. Mm. So it kind of flopped right there almost because that was kind of the main thing, right? Is um, mm. we don't have a lot of depth and we want to try and get more locals involved. So it was like, right, let's get the pool training in you know, the the peak time, pretty much if you're a public to that pool on a weekday, pretty much got to go at 7 p.m. and the pool shuts at 8.30. You know, mm-hmm. anytime from three in the afternoon through to seven, yeah, it's it's all pretty much blocked out. There are some extra days, hence why I wanted lane allocation on certain days, right? Mm-hmm. There are some availability in that in that schedule. Um, yeah, so it kind of hit a bit of a barrier right away and it was like, ah, all this and we can't actually operate in the way we were trying to do it. Right? We had a where I would hopefully have a consistent time slot every week that wasn't, you know, eight o'clock at night. Um, get more people involved in pool training, right? To kind of spark that weekend interest mm-hmm. when they go out the ocean. Um, so it kind of hit a bit of a barrier. Uh, used um, the association really as well, just to generate more interest in the sport, get more people involved. Used it as well as a bit of a platform to get people together. So people could find new training partners, new buddies, new people to go out with. You know, um, it's always a challenge when you want to go diving and your friend's not available to go, and you're like, "Well, I'm either going to go by myself or I'm not going to go at all." Um, so those that would make that decision to go solo, you know, they were definitely a demographic I wanted to try and target to be like, "You don't need to." There's now a group here. Reach mm-hmm. out. You never know; someone might be available when you're available, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Then there was an, sort of an early stage kind of, not liability issue, but most people were certified, but there was quite a few that weren't. And the ones that weren't were like, oh, but I've been doing it since I was a child. Mm. Um, and it's like, that's fine, but do you know how to save someone's life? Like, no. Okay, well, that person over there who's only been diving three months, they could save your life if they had to, right? So now it's like, right, I'm going to be, if I'm going to be the um, driving force behind getting people connected, then there's got to be an element of safety to it. So then that whole association kind of then moved towards 
a group of people who are all certified. Mm. And it's not to be like, oh, there's this barrier to entry. It's like, well, I don't want to be complicit in two random people meeting up and one of them knows what they're doing and one of them doesn't. So then the associations kind of moved in that direction, unfortunately. I wanted it to be a mm. bit more of a kind of anyone with any um, level of interest could show up in, at the pool and get some kind of, you know, basic training, let's say. Not necessarily for free, but, you know, just to sort of pay the pool fee, if you will. But it kind of had to go in a different direction. So, yeah, the association was a big learning curve of what it's like to live in the Caribbean. Mm. <laughs> it's really interesting because you've you've pretty much hit on every single thing that, that we went through here with the Halifax Freediving Club. And, and the, the pool side of it was, you know, because it's cold most of the year, so we want... Yeah. somewhere people that can keep training. And then the issue with us here was it took us about three years, two and a half years to get a, get into a pool, but that's because nobody wanted anybody freediving in pools. And then we ran into the, the, the very, very same issues with, uh, you know, you create a barrier to the entry of the sport, but yeah. you also need that because, again, you don't want to be complicit in somebody going like, hey, yeah, let's go freediving. You're like not certified. And then, you know, they go off deep edge somewhere and something happens, right? Yeah. I think it's, um, I mean, you see it everywhere, but been here so long now that I see people arrive at the beach together, get geared up together, jump in the water together, swim out together. And then you look back five minutes later and you realize they've gone their separate ways. <laughs> so yeah. they'll be like, no, I'm always, I always go with my buddy. I never go by myself. It's like, right. But you dive solo, just arrive yeah. together. In the um, same motion at the same time, right? Right, yeah. So that was that was kind of a realization as well. It's just because this guy's like, Oh, I've been diving since I was a kid. It's like do you has someone kind of in, fully informed you of how to do it safely? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of the thing. Kind of um I think it was Ted Harty who said one time that uh when when he hears about you know, students meeting up outside of courses and stuff. And when he gets feedback that like, oh, such and such kept swimming off. You know, when he was, this is Ted Hartier, freediver from the US. Um, you know, he said, one of the statements he made was that initially, you know, he would think like, oh, that guy is just an ass. And what he realized over time was that was a failing of his as an instructor. He didn't impose the need for that diligent safety in that person well enough that they mm. changed that person's perspective on how they should be diving. So we saw it as like a personal failing of the instructor. And when I heard that, I sort of took it to heart a little bit like, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, I've had students give me feedback on, you know, people they dove with that, you know, rescues they've had to do. And they've messaged me in the, you know, in the future saying like, I'm grateful for doing the course with you. Cause I just had to save my buddy's life today or yesterday or something. So getting that feedback is always um, sobering, but mm-hmm. rewarding. But then conversely, yeah, if I get it where someone's like, oh, I went diving with such and such, you know, and they're certified through someone else or whatever, but hey, they kept swimming away and leaving me alone. Like I thought they weren't supposed to do that. It's like, yeah, maybe that person just wasn't fully told how important it is. All right? It's not always the person's fault. Maybe their instructor just didn't spend the time to kind of impose that upon them. Yeah, no, for sure. I just wanted to um, talk about spearfishing a little bit. Uh, And you've described the self-sufficiency that spearfishing gives you as very primal. Uh, What did you mean by that? 
you do it yourself. You you see the. I mean, okay, so let's talk about lionfish because that's kind of the, I wouldn't say the easy one, but it's the kind of catch-all that no one can really argue with me on. Um, <laughs> Spearfishing is a tricky <laughs> subject these days. Um, and no offense, but around scuba divers, I I do tend to be on the back foot initially because a lot of scuba divers have a perception, a stereotype about spearfishermen, which I get because most spearfishermen don't necessarily give us the best image. So as mm. far as the gratification of like the primal thing about hunting fish, it's um, you put so much work and effort into going out there, diving, catching, securing, pairing, filleting, that when you do eat it, it just tastes so much better. Mm. You just can't compare. I can go to the market and buy a fish that they claim was caught the same day, but one <laughs> that I've caught uh, and eaten. The, the difference in quality is is immeasurable. Um, so the primal thing kind of comes from that. It's like you've put your time and effort to it and then you're eating it that night and it tastes amazing. So you can't. Everyone talks about, you know, going to the fish market and buying the fish fresh, you know, and it's kind of a thing, right? Instead of going to a restaurant where it's been frozen and frosted, who knows how old it is. You can just go to the market and buy one and take it home. So, or you could catch it yourself. And then you know exactly how fresh it is. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I mean, a, a part of that, I think, could resonate with a lot of folks when you, you know, you across the globe, when you look at fishing in general. So there is that uh, definitive part. One of the pieces, and I think you alluded to it there in terms of saying that lionfish is kind of the equalizer, but overfishing is is an issue within many parts of the Caribbean on reefs. And a lot of it can be based on economic necessity. So it's not necessarily like any sort of nefarious thing that people are doing. They're they're trying to survive. They're trying to feed their families. And so overfishing kind of comes as a resulting piece of that. So from your point of view, how how do you sort of, uh, I guess, balance the scales on that as a spearfisher? Yeah, the lionfish really is, is, as you say, is the equalizer, right? Um, that's the one you can pretty much just pump out as many as you can kill. Great. The more, the, the more, the merrier for the rest of the fish. Um, it comes down to education hundred percent. Um, as Nick will know, and as you will know me as well, um, more often than not, every fish in the sea has a completely different local name, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of local fishermen, you know, you'd call them professional fishermen. And they do it for their, you know, been doing it their whole life and that's how they feed their family. It's a lot of them don't even know the real names of fish. They don't know at what age they reproduce. They don't know um, any of the sort of, say, biological factors. And why is that important? Well, it's important to understand it from a sustainability perspective. It's kind of like, um, you know, Oahu, for example, right? Open water, um, you know, deep sea fish uh, can grow to 10 pounds their first year so when you see a fisherman pulling one in that's you know five pounds in weight and they still keep it because hey that's a couple of dollars right there or that's a bit of food it's like well really that one should go back right we want to catch them over 10 pounds where they've had a chance to reproduce so when i say education i think that's what it comes down to right as i i have a passion and the interest in this stuff not necessarily to know at what age fish like to start doing it but just so i know you know should I take this one or leave it? Mm-hmm. Um, is it, it? Am I going to be um, having an additional detrimental effect on this ecosystem by taking this particular size or particular species of fish? Um, parrotfish is another big one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, here they call them chubs. It's kind of the local name for the fish, parrotfish being the real name. Mm-hmm. And the, I, you know, ultimately kind of one of the most important species on the reef. When you talk to people about it, um, again, they're often viewed as dollar signs, right? They're easy to shoot. Mm-hmm. They're not that difficult to hunt. Um, don't taste that great to me personally. I think they're one of my least desirable fish from a taste perspective, but lots of people seem to love them. Um, and even, well, maybe I can say it without dropping name, but there's someone that works <laughs> at the EU. No, I had this conversation a couple of years ago with someone that works at the EU in the marine kind of based division of the EU. And I mentioned this whole thing about chubs and parrotfish, and suddenly something in their head clicked that that's the same fish. They'd been buying and eating chubs from a local fish vendor, never knowing that what it was they were actually eating was parrotfish. So mm-hmm. there's something right there of someone in that, let's say, ecosystem, right? They're, they work for the EU, they're in the kind of marine, you know, mm-hmm. ocean part of it, didn't even know that distinction. Once they had that sort of knowledge of like, oh shoot, I've been eating parrotfish, I didn't realize that's what it was. Because often when you buy these fish from the locals, um, they're already skinned and everything, so you, it's hard to, to easily identify you know, what kind of species it is. It's just kind of a mixed bag. So education, because once you realize how important a parrotfish is, a lot of people quite quickly change their outlook on taking another one. Mm-hmm. Right? You realize, damn, we really need these parrotfish to keep our reef alive. If the reef collapses, everything else collapses. Therefore, mm-hmm. my whole thing collapses. Um, so what's the first thing I can potentially do to help that? No longer take parrotfish. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, that educational element, in my opinion, is the strongest way because you can just impose a law, you know, you, tomorrow they could say, right, no more parrotfish, that's it. You know, a thousand dollar fine if you're caught with one. People are still going to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's not going to really change much. And then you've got the whole issue of enforcement and da, da, da. <laughs> yeah. um, But if you get mm-hmm. people caring about it, people understand it if the education's there. And I'm, you know, people often even ask me, they like, just when I'm doing a briefing, right, we're standing on the beach and we're talking about these are the fish we are going to target, but these are lionfish. People, oh, so you did marine biology. I'm like, no, I'm just really into this stuff. You know, I just, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I, the fish are a byproduct of the activity, right? It's, even if you go spearfishing, it's not, my opinion, all about shooting fish in the face, right? That's just a, that's just a, mm. a byproduct of it. Um, my approach has always been, uh, what makes you a good spear fisherman is how many fish you let live meaning how many opportunities you could have taken a fish, but you chose not to for whatever reason, whether it was you decided it's not the right one, it's not big enough, too small, whatever you know, factor it was, you waited for that perfect opportunity, right? Or you went home empty-handed, which for me is fine, mm-hmm. uh, which is also why I could never be a commercial fisherman because I'd be broke. <laughs> 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 Growing up, catch and release fishing in England, I, you know, it doesn't sit well with me to just shoot, 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 or just harvest over and over and over. Um, I don't get any gratification out of that. So the lionfish was kind of a perfect fit because it was around, as I said, the same sort of 2013 when we when they first started appearing here was around the time I was considering this whole spearfishing charter idea. Didn't know how it was going to be perceived, how it was going to be taken locally. But then, hey, these lionfish are here. Boom. So we can go out, we can kill as many as we like. And if we don't get anything else on a dive but lionfish, like, great, we've still got some amazing fish to go home and eat. And they taste right. incredible. Yeah. Um, 
definitely when people are asking, you know, oh, what about Barracuda? Um, it's like, hey, lionfish still tastes better, my opinion, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, it's a combination of a few different factors, but yeah, um, spearfishing and overfishing is a big problem. Sorry, well, overfishing is a big problem, but um, you know, it's still legal in many islands to spearfish on scuba, do it commercially. Yeah. Um, it's a tricky thing. Alex, is there a place online? Where people can talk to you about spearfishing responsibility, or they could come free dive with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got Spearfishing Barbados on Facebook, Instagram, and also if you just put .com, you'll find me. Same with free diving as well. So for both Spearfishing Barbados and Freediving Barbados, that's it. It's just that's my that's the the business name. It's the thing in the place. Um, yeah, everything. Facebook, Instagram, website, and if you put freedivingbarbados at gmail that's me too. So it all. It's all nice and easy. Awesome. And I'll talk your ear off. So don't, I mean, don't come <laughs> talking to me about this stuff if you don't uh, actually want to know. <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah. Once, what are you gonna... once you get this train going, it's not an easy one to stop. It's like, like it's like it. a mitt with side mount. We understand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're just waiting to bring that up, April, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, what keeps you diving, Alex? The thought of a desk job again. <laughs> that's, that's that might be my favorite answer today. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think that's, that's I think that's really it. You know, my alarm that's is awesome. five thirty every day. Uh, whether it's because uh, uh, I've got my kid or whether it's because I'm going diving, and you know, when I know I'm getting up for a dive, I don't have any problem rolling out of bed at five thirty. Um, so I think I've always been someone who. Um, works to live and I, I like that to be my life as in mm. I've done many other styles of jobs and I wouldn't even call them careers but other sort of avenues uh, was in catering industry uh, worked in the fast food business I've done website stuff and SEO and marketing blah 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 um, but none of those did I ever wake up in the morning be like I'm ready but with diving, it's always that I get up in the morning, boom, my eyes are awake and I'm ready to go. And that's what keeps me back is, you know, it's, it can sometimes get tedious swimming around and, you know, but uh, it never gets, it's never a drag. It's never, never boring. There's always something different. There's always something mm. new, different challenge to face with a student or, um, yeah, what keeps me coming back is just, I can't keep out. I can't keep away. That's awesome. It certainly it certainly sounds like like you found your passion, and um, I I want to say an awesome thanks for for sharing your journey with us and for sharing everything that you you've done and the things that that keep you in the water and away from desk job. So thank you very much. <laughs> no, no worries. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's um it's always a good uh, excuse to hear my own voice over and over for an hour. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the good thing is, once we upload this, and in, in, in you know, in a week or so, it'll, you can listen to it over and over again. <laughs> yeah, on <Yeah>. repeat. <laughs> yeah, I've done a few podcasts before, and I've I have listened to them back. I listened to them back once, and I'm like, same thing. Everyone says, you know, do I really sound like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Then I realized, why did I say that? Oh, that joke wasn't very funny, Alex. Uh. <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, we're like that all the time. We're just like, yeah, I was going to say we're like that every uh, week. So yeah. Maybe I just need a 
better mic. You guys, I see you guys got all your big fancy mics with your foam, and <laughs> this is this is me over here. We got a, we got a recent upgrade. Really, underneath this, I just have one of those, and uh, yeah, I, I just built all this out of cardboard and spray painted it. There's nothing here. It's, it's just, just a prop. Oh it's yeah, prop. it just makes me look like I know what I'm doing. That explains but I no your clue, computer. I meant, did you make that one out of the cardboard? Computer as well? is, the computer is made out of like some batteries and yeah, a couple of cables from the backyard and an old TV. We keep That's... joking that that Amit's dive computer is probably faster than his laptop. He's podcasting from. <laughs> it's got more processing power. That's for sure. First up tonight is on a single breath, so let's head on over to Nick. Thanks, April. Um, so today I was going to talk a little bit about free diving disciplines. Can either of you name one free diving discipline without Mono looking fan. at the notes? Static. I don't know. Okay, so April's got one. <laughs> and okay. Justin's almost there. Um, so there's a, when we talk about free diving, and I, I thought about this as we've been doing the show over the last two years or so, uh, we also often throw out acronyms out there. So static is rightfully a discipline in freediving. So when we look at the sport as a competitive discipline, there's different kind of sub uh, disciplines that you can specialize in, if you will. Um, but before we get to that, so there's two main bodies that adjudicate freediving competition. There's ADA, which is the Association of for the International Development of Apnea, and then there's CMAS, which is the Global Confederation for Subaquatic Sports, and both of these acronyms originate in French. Uh, so the main freediving disciplines, uh, if you hear people throwing uh, acronyms such as CWT and CNF, they all have a meaning and they, they come from somewhere. So constant weight, uh, which is CWT, comes from the idea that you descend and ascend on a freediving line in a competition with the same amount of weight. So you're not ditching any weight, you're not adding any weight, so the weight is constant. And historically, that has involved uh, dives with both a monofin and and bifins, which is basically just a fin on each foot. Um, and that was actually split into constant weight bifins as a separate discipline uh, by ADA in 2019. So now if you do constant weight, it's with a monofin. And if you do constant weight bifins, it's just uh, with bifins. And there's actually a specific rule that you cannot dolphin kick or you cannot emulate a monofin dive on a constant weight bifins. Um, and then, so these wonderful acronyms keep going. So you have another one called CNF, which is constant weight without fins, which is basically you're swimming, free swimming down and up, and you're not uh, touching the line, and you're not using any fins or any other aids. And that's probably the the hardest di discipline of all. And then Alex had alluded to earlier um, about the discipline called free immersion. And I have no idea where that name comes from, but it's basically you pulling down the rope and pulling up the rope, and it's probably what a lot of people consider the easiest discipline because you're just effectively pulling yourself down to the bottom and then pulling yourself back up. So in a competition and on a roster, you would see all these kind of different acronyms and, and what they mean uh, is usually not explained. Um, and then if you go to the pool, you kind of have a, a very parallel to that. So dynamic is where you would swim across. So in a pool, you won't be going for depth, you'd be going for distance. Um, so dynamic with fins would be the equivalent of constant weight. Um, and that's using a monofin. And then again, 2019, that got split into like a bifins discipline. So you have dynamic bifin or DYNB. Um, and then there's, again, the equivalent of having no fins, which is dynamic without fins or DNF, um, which is where you're trying to cover as much distance in the pool with uh, without any fins. And then the one that April alluded to is a static apnea, which is where you're basically face down in a pool with a safety. 
and you're just trying to hold your breath for as long as possible. And that's generally considered more of a, a mental exercise than anything else. Those are all disciplines covered in competitive events. Historically, we had two other disciplines. Uh, one was uh, VWT, which is called variable weight, where you would descend with a weight to a predetermined depth, and, the, and then you would sort of ditch the weight or leave it hanging in a rope, and then you would uh, swim back up or, or fin back up or pull up the rope under your own strength. And that's, that was generally done using kind of a weighted sled. And then, of course, because people have always wanted to push human boundaries, there was a, there was a discipline called no limits, where you would, again, take a weighted sled to as far as you you could go. Um, and obviously, you would kind of set a depth because that's the attempt you were making. And instead of coming back up under your own strength, the diver would uh, use a lift bag or a counter ballast to kind of fly back up to the surface. And and people have gone as far as, for the men's, has been 214 meters. That was Herbert Nitsch in 2007. And the women's record, Tanya Streeter, uh, at 160 meters in 2002, still stands today. Um, the last two categories, the variable weight and the low limit, isn't really done anymore. Uh, mostly because it's considered too dangerous. We've kind of pushed the records. And... Um, in some circles, we've kind of gone back to, to trying to freediving more of as a discipline rather than a, a pure sort of breath hold slash equalization exercise. So if anybody's interested in in these disciplines and, and when you kind of get into the freediving lingo, um, these are kind of what the acronyms mean and what the disciplines mean and, and what freedivers get involved in and the things that they specialize in is generally something that they're interested in. So not everybody competes in all the disciplines and people specialize they only in constant weight or just static, depending what what their favorite thing is to do. Like we have lots of people that listen to the podcast who honestly, well, I mean, I'm I'm a host on the mm-hmm. podcast, and honestly, I don't know that much about free diving. So um, I think it's like very informative because we have so many free diving guests on the show, and sometimes we like talk about these things or we ask these questions, and we might not mm. totally know what they mean. So. Yeah, and then I, I generally try to like, I guess I'm very conscious when I'm asking a freediver question to try to sort of spell it out or explain mm-hmm. it a little bit because I'm thinking about the guests, but um, about the audience, but sometimes the guests are just, mm-hmm. you know, they just use the lingo it's they used to. Yeah. Um, and then, so yeah, I've I found a couple of times that like, yeah, I need to do a little bit of a segment on what the different freediving disciplines mean. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. And if you think that's confusing, there used to be a lot more. If you go back to the episode where (laughs) we talked to Lee Davis, I forget what it was called, but it was uh, constant weight, no fins was called something way more convoluted when he was doing it in the early 2000s. So it's gotten a little bit better. A lot of people have advocated for moving away from these, from this lingo to make the sport more accessible, but uh, maybe that day will come. Nice. Well, thanks for that. That was great. Let's chat side mount with a mitt. All right. Well, you know, that that was a lot of information, and some of it, i got to be honest, Nick, I may or may not remember and have to ask you about in the future. However, uh, I'm going to talk to you about... You're going to come and do a freediving course with me, then you remember. Maybe one day. Yeah, one day. Uh, but what we're going to talk about today is uh, something that uh, really came back to haunt me, because it's, uh, it's, it's basically this idea that sometimes trim can be a pain in the neck. Uh, so it's been a couple of weeks since I've been in the water, which has been a tragic thing that's occurred as a result of a leaky dry suit. Uh, but necessary when you're kind of too chicken to get back in the water in November in a wetsuit. Uh, so, uh, I did 
managed to, with April's kind of blessing, go and snag a dry suit from the shop the other day because I was just, I think the term might be uh, withdrawing from diving uh, and thought I'd hop back in the water. And uh, I think in doing that, it had been a while, I guess, uh, you know, that two week period. So my body wasn't necessarily as conditioned to it. And then the other piece was I was diving in a little bit of an unfamiliar piece of kit. So the, the trim characteristics were slightly different than what I would expect in my own. And, you know, I, I would be a person that I would argue doesn't have the greatest neck flexibility, um, you know, being an older guy. So one thing that came up as a result of it was the idea that like, you know, being in this in proper trim because of this, this issue of neck flexibility becomes problematic in side mount sometimes because side mount, if your kit is trimmed out properly, more or less places you in proper trim, whether you want to be in proper trim or not. So it's really one of these things that's like, you know, it's an, an advantage in your diving, but it can also in my case, potentially be something that you have to be aware of. So this idea of, what happens to your neck and why might you end up with neck uh, pain when you're, when you're in proper trim. And that most of the time that happens because you have to look up and because you lack mm -hmm. flexibility in your neck, you may end up putting extra tension across your traps and or the back of your neck. And then this can, you know, cause trigger points and what have you uh, in your neck. So one of the things that I would suggest as people get back into the water, if you if it's been a while is like, you know, maybe as you're doing some stretching, consider stretching that neck component and, uh, this isn't obviously an issue that's just side mount related, right? I'm sure anyone in proper trim and whatever configuration you're diving in could experience this uh, the same kind of an issue. But I just felt like it's something that I, I, I've seen in side mount quite a bit because of how well trimmed out we generally tend to be. Not That's not a shot across the bow at anybody. It just is what it is. <laughs> yeah, April's like, I don't <laughs> believe you. Uh, so, yeah, so I don't know about you guys, but have you experienced that? Have you guys ever experienced this uh, this idea of neck pain while you're diving? I've experienced like this weird shoulder pain every time I dive side mount and, and I, I can't exactly figure it out what it is. Um, and it's, it's often just the one shoulder. So I, I don't automatically think it's related to side mount, but I think it's more pronounced when I'm, I'm wearing side mounts. I don't know if the harness is maybe configured too tight, but, mm. um, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, you know me, I'm going to throw in my free diving bit, yep. but you know, free divers, uh, generally have a very, thorough stretching routine and Alex just kind of alluded to mm -hmm. that. I, I think, you know, this is, this is probably a huge benefit for any diver trying to stay fit and flexible mm -hmm. to, to do some regular stretching. And I think that could probably avoid a lot of problems um, in any diving configuration, but I was just kind of thinking about it since you mentioned it. Here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was also like what I kind of, where my brain was at too, was just like the whole fit to dive, mm -hmm. you know, and a component of stretching and, uh, you know, being in uh, a physical capabilities of uh, doing these things. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm young, but I, I don't get <laughs> neck pain when I die. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I can't. Some, sometimes, uh, I, I mean, you can, uh, you can flaunt your side mount a little bit here, but sometimes I accidentally put my tank a little bit high and then my head right. is like okay. hitting my, my valve in my first stage. Mm -hmm. And that's annoying, mm -hmm. but... Um, no, yeah. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't get a sore neck. Fair enough. Sorry. Well, you know, and like you said, I think you guys. Are, it's coming. It's I'm sure it's coming. One of these. A few days. more. A few more years sitting at my desk typing on my laptop. I'm sure it'll. Uh, it'll come. It'll, it'll yeah. Be there. 
Well, yeah, I mean that, yeah, and I guess well, since you... Well, thanks for that, Amit. Well, I was going to say since you chirp. Oh, look at him cutting me off right as we go. <laughs> Dirty. Uh, looking in the nice, text. Nice. So <laughs> since April chirped me, I'll just be like, I mean, it, it might be a thing that you'll find when you establish proper trim and, you know, <laughs> uh, could be an issue that you could look at in back mount. Um, but now that aside... <laughs> on that one uh i, I will say an easy fix to this like you know and of course I, I recognize it as soon as i was you know starting to feel that initial pain uh it was is to just kind of do like a quick arch in your back it just kind of thrust mm -hmm. your torso up a little bit and you kind of you like bend your your back up uh, a tiny bit and it just relieves some of that strain so it's easier it's yeah. easy to fix uh but it is something that maybe if you're unaware and you come across it you're like oh i wonder why my neck's kind of hurting it could be just be you're just in bad trim to start or that, you know, there are these other issues that, that could be playing out. And like you guys said, proper stretching routine, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a uh, little bit more limbered up being younger. Uh, all these things are definitively <laughs> going to help uh, the being younger. You can't really do much about, uh, but certainly the fitness component, <laughs> like uh, that Nick had mentioned in a proper stretching routine could potentially help out with that. But being aware of it is definitely a case and then looking at like how is it that you can moderate that and one of the easiest ways is just to kind of lift your lift your chest up a tiny bit um mm. you know so easy one dion always tells me to do like the skydiver he's like pretend that you're like skydiving mm -hmm. so you kind of like arch your back and do, uh, do an upward dog that's right yeah, yeah. it like <laughs> it's forced with honestly i find uh just doing the like arching my back Feel like that amount of time more difficult, mm -hmm. like because it feels so forced. Amit's point is is interesting because basically what you're saying, if you are inside mind and you're experiencing some neck pain, there's something you should be analyzing, and there's a way to fix it. Ultimately, that's what we're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, so that's not to discourage people who experience pain inside mind to go like, oh, this isn't for me. Yeah. yeah, like I said, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I certainly wouldn't think of this as being a side mount specific thing. It just, it came to mind to, to me today, uh, or well, I guess yesterday when I went out diving because it had been a while. And I do find like anything, if you step away for it, from it a bit and then you come back to it, you know, those muscles haven't been doing it. So if you're in the water two, three times a week and then all of a sudden you go two weeks, three weeks and you've not been in the water. Well, your body hasn't done that thing for a while and it uh, you might pay for it, right? If you don't do the prep ahead of time. So... I think regardless, you know, of, of the case, it, it could be applicable to any type of diving. But in my case here, I, I kind of was just, I was taking a little bit of, uh, what we say, creative uh, leave in the sense of I did say that, you know, the segment was going to be like highly biased towards time out and just going to say that, you know, we, <laughs> we throw ourselves and we're, we're just so much in such great trim as high mount divers yeah. that that's got to be a piece why it could be specific to side mount so we'll call this a maybe side mount et al type uh, diving piece well thank you for yeah. that Amit and April um, and that does it for today's episode I want to thank Alex for joining us it's been a pleasure I want to thank uh, April for coming on and having a chat with Alex and uh, Amit thanks as well yeah, it was a pleasure talking to Alex, and I, I enjoyed his energy and his professionalism and it was great to have uh, another return to the Caribbean yeah, it was great. Alex was awesome. And I look forward to, uh, you know, following along with his adventures on social media and, yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah. I say we all look forward to having Justin back. Uh, we don't know where he disappeared yes. to tonight. Uh, we heard he may be painting something. I think he's so painting. hopefully we'll have you back on here soon, Justin. Don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash dive and pod and get some fun rewards for doing so. 
Visit our website, diveinpod.com for all the links you need, episodes, merch, and so much more. On social media, you can follow me at April Weikert. Justin is at iDiveOkay. I'm at Nicholas Winkler Photography. And next week, we speak to Demise Ferrugia. Demi is the owner of Diverse Scuba Solutions in Malta. He's a recreational and technical instructor and a passionate side mount diver. This episode of Dive In, the podcast, was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. Thank you for listening. <laughs>